to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Tim Camisa, and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing for everyone. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Tim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, then we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook and Instagram or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. And if you have a moment, you can do it right now. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Tim Camisa about fly fishing for everyone. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great. and The scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800 800- 9629755. Before we introduce Tim, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On a drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Tim's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Tim's first book, Fly Tying for Everyone, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to find out more about Stackpole and the books that they offer, you can go to stackpolebooks.com and check them out. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills and take some notes, and maybe you'll win Tim's latest and first book called Fly Tying for Everyone. Our guest tonight is Tim Camisa. Tim is of Trout and Feather and has been addicted to fly fishing and fly tying for about as long as anyone can remember. Although he and his wife, Heather, live in western Pennsylvania, fly fishing has taken him all over the country with his fly fishing home base being the State College area. Some of Tim's favorite waters include the mighty Delaware, where he has guided, and Missouri rivers, 
Though discovering small streams and wild trout continues to excite him, his five-year-old son, Angelo, especially likes this, as he has also caught the fly fishing bug. Tim is one of the new generations of fly fishers who have taken to social media to promote and teach the sport. A fly fisherman and fly tire for 30 years, Tim started making fly tying tutorials and posting them on YouTube, which permits users to upload their own homemade videos on just about any topic. Tim and his coffee mug have co-starred in over 300 videos on many different fly fishing and tying topics, like purchasing and maintaining gear, tying with certain materials or a specific fly pattern, and giving back to charities such as Project Healing Waters. Tim has had a great response to his videos and now has an audience of over 25,000 subscribers with 3 million video views. You can view Tim in person, tying at events as the International Fly Tying Symposium and the Fly Fishing Show in Edison, New Jersey and Denver, Colorado. View Tim's fly tying and fly fishing videos on his website at troutandfeather.com. Again, that's troutandfeather.com. Tim, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Wow, what an introduction, Roger. It's great to be back. I find it absolutely wild that now this is my second time on this show. That's because right. as you know, and as your listeners know, I'm a fan of the show. I've been listening to it for as long as I can remember. And I'm the person that always searches the archives and, you know, I find topics that I like. And it's always fascinating when I find that favorite person and he's been on the show or she's been on the show more than once. And you can kind of build a relationship. And now like that's turning into me. So I appreciate it. I'm glad I didn't scare too many of your listeners away with my first Oh, no, no. And hopefully you'll be back again and again. But <laughs> you start to get old if you've been on my show more than a few times. <laughs> because it's, uh, what, for 15 years now. So, yeah, it's been a long time. But, yeah, we did a show with Tim. I'm trying to figure out what date that was. But we did one on Do Your Fly Rod Flies and Techniques Travel Well. So we're talking about different fly fishing in different locations and what you need to take and how you need to adapt to that. So that's a show you'll want to check out, too, in our archive. As I said, welcome back. It's going to be fun talking about because you – congratulations on your new book, your first book, which is really important. And it's just – I don't know, it's just coming out now, right? I just got my copy a few days ago. So is it out and on Amazon, I see? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's wild. It's the release date is July 1st, and, you know, for those people who are listening after the fact, you know, Roger and I are recording this June 30th, but the, the release date is the 1st of July. It's been kind of crazy to, to log into Amazon to see my book, my face there, Time Flies, and on Target, and Barnes and & Noble, and all those places, and, you know, people can also find it through the website, so I'm selling autographed copies through my website, too, and it's just been really cool to kind of get it out there, and it's, it's starting to show up where people are starting to message me and saying, Tim, I got your book. I can't believe this flies in it, just that type of stuff. It's really wild to see all this stuff come to fruition. Well, good, good. Yeah, it's always exciting to see a new book out there, and when it's yours, it's super exciting. <laughs> so, again, congrats. We're going to dig into parts of it. Of course, we can't, you know, do a whole book in 90 minutes here, but we'll explore some different aspects of, you know, how you approach the book and some of the techniques and your thoughts on different things as we go here through the night. So this will be fun because, like I said before, you know, when we were talking before the show, this brings back old memories to me when I first got started tying. And you think about all those days past and uh, how you got to where you are now. And so it's a fun journey for all of us to reflect on. So let's talk about you and your fly time. When did you get started and how did you get started? 
Well, thanks. And for me, fly tying came before fly fishing. It's kind of a different journey than a lot of people. My parents signed me up for this after-school program when I was in fourth grade. I was around 10 years old. And I can vividly remember this. I showed up for this class right after school. We stayed back in these classrooms. And a bunch of us showed up, and there were these, you know, these fly tires that were getting all their stuff ready. And they were starting to tie these flies and these patterns. And it almost felt like a craft class. And I thought to myself, I don't think this is for me. You know, I was kind of athletic. I was into that kind of pathway. And here are these older gentlemen. I'll say they were very experienced gentlemen that were weaving these patterns, and there were these weird glues and just all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And then they invited us up, and we started to do it. And it was fun at first. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It was just, all right, this is cool. I, I like this. And then somebody brought out a patch of deer hair, and they taught us how to spin deer hair and cut it, and they were just deer hair fibers all over the place. It made this giant mess. And we made these crazy things that looked like mice. And at that point, that's when I was hooked. I was like, oh, this is really cool. I wasn't quite sure that how to fish with these things yet, but at least at that aspect, when it came to spinning deer hair, like I was all in. Yeah, yeah. So then you started taking the classes, and how long after that did you actually start fishing? It was about a few months after that, because what I found out from that class is that one of the instructors, we started talking and developed a little relationship, and this instructor kind of informed me that my great-uncle John, who I was really close with, but I didn't realize he was a fly fisher and a fly tire. Once I found that out, I just started pestering my parents, like, hey, you've got to bring me over to see Uncle John. I want to find out more about this fly time and his influence on it. And so by them kind of making that reintroduction to my uncle, who I was already close to, but then it just took on this brand new kind of mentorship in a sense. I mean, he, he just turned into one, that person in my life that he just guided me down this path because he was the fly tire. He was the fly fisher that everyone in my area kind of looked up to. And then now I got to see him in a new light. He was the person who really pulled me from this class to say, all right, here's what we do now. And he's the one who took me fly fishing. I mean, my parents got me my first rod, and I was really proud of it. But it was him that whenever we showed up on the water and scared every fish out there with the cast, that he and his partner said to me, you're not coming back fishing with us again unless you know how to cast. Like, you scared every trout in a tri-state area. So we've got to teach you how to cast next time. It was cool that I had that person to kind of, show me the way, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, it was the same for me. It was a father that lived a couple doors down, and his two young boys were too little to learn how to fly tie. So my friend and I would go over there in the evenings, and he'd show us how to tie. And so that was my next question. You know, did you have a mentor? So Uncle John was your mentor, it sounds like. Did you have other mentors yeah. that as time went by? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I guess I've been very fortunate to have a bunch. I mean, my uncle, without a doubt, he was the first, and I'll just tell people, I mean, to show how much of an influence he had. I took a picture of him and his fly time room, and I placed it in the book because that was like the mecca. Like, that was the spot. It was, if you made it into his fly time room just with all these feathers and fibers and fur and tinsel and stuff all around, like, you know you made it to that upper echelon. But that was the spot in my life. As I kind of moved forward, there were a number of other mentors that kind of really made an impact on me. Uh, one gentleman by the name of John Dunn, he was the one who kind of pulled me out of just fishing western Pennsylvania, and he's the one who introduced me to waters, you know, in the center of the state, and he brought me out to Montana. So he was kind of that next mentor. And then as I really got a little bit more interested in fly fishing, I started guiding on the Delaware River, 
and I got it for a couple seasons, Roger. And it was fun. It was great because I'm a teacher. I teach fifth grade. And in the summers, I had off. And I thought, well, this would be great. I'll fly fish. I'll guide people. But then I realized I was losing my fishing times. That's kind of how I made the jump from fly fishing into sharing my experiences on YouTube. And from that sharing of the experiences, my newest mentor, in a sense, came out of that, and it's Chuck Frimsky. He's the individual huh? that started the – yeah, he's the one that started the fly fishing show. He still runs the, the International Fly Tying Symposium. But he contacted me to tie the symposium, and he wanted me to be there and be a, a featured tire. And it was kind of wild to, to even receive that offer from him. You know, I was really excited. He and I – we had a chance to talk a little bit at that first show, but – I found out that he came back to Western Pennsylvania quite often. You know, we made it a point to get together and fish. Then I asked him to be on my YouTube channel, and I recorded him, and we just developed a friendship over the years to the point where I'm sure I had to put my call on Do Not Disturb because I'm positive he'll call at some point tonight because we talk on a pretty regular basis. And it's great because he's that mentor that I can ask questions about fly fishing and fly tying, but he's also that person that can help me within the industry too. So he's been that current mentor for me to help kind of push me to the next level. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. We have a question come in here on the Internet from Phil in Kentucky. He said, did you start to tie flies with the goal of catching trout, or like many of us, were you? did you start by tying flies to catch warm water species? Gosh, I first started tying flies because I thought it was fascinating to create these patterns that just looked like something in nature. So that was my first, I guess, to answer Phil's question, it wasn't about catching fish at first. It was just really cool to replicate these insects and these terrestrials and, and bait fish. Like that was my first foray into fly time for me. At that point, though, I'll be honest, Phil, I could care less what I caught. I wanted to catch anything. I mean, you know what it's like whenever you first get into fly fishing and you're using flies you tied yourself. I mean, you're happy if, if you hook yourself. That's like a great, I caught something today because – Fly fishing in itself is really tough. And then when you introduce your flies, like, it's that much more of a learning curve. I was a trout fisher. That was kind of the, the area that I wanted to excel in. And I think it's because my Uncle John, being that mentor, what did he do? He fly fished for trout. I still, to this day, I love to chase trout. I love to chase striped bass. I'm getting into muskie with the fly rods. Now it's to the point where if it swims, I'm going after it. But at the time, it definitely was trout in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Phil also had another question. He said, well, kind of a comment and a question. He says, do you think the abundance of information about fly tying and fly fishing online has made it tough for people to know where to start? And you have, like we said in your introduction, over 300 videos out there. I've got something like 330 shows on Ask About Fly Fishing, and we're just two people <laughs> producing content. You know, I see his point. Like, where do you begin to learn on the internet or in today's world because when I started and I'm sure when you started there was no internet and there weren't any videos it was all books or demos so where do you see a person starting today where do they go to learn and how would you approach it Roger you and I are like we're on the same wavelength tonight because and I was going to say I bet you have some thoughts on this question too because I'd love to hear your thoughts I'm going to kind of go into what you've always said I mean, I remember 30 years ago going to the library, the public library, and just pulling these books from the shelves, just pouring into them, like writing, taking notes. I mean, I can't even imagine that. I was taking notes from a library book, 
30 years ago about fly tying and fly fishing. Like just, I was so fascinated by everything. And then, then from there, we, we had VHS tapes, DVDs, and I even remember like the discussion boards on the internet, how those discussion boards, like that was really, you were really getting somewhere then because you could pick up information from all around the country, all around the world, not just in your little areas. At that time, it was, it was neat because you had this information, but most importantly, and this is kind of where things have started to change, at least in my opinion, the information at that time, I felt that it, it tended to be more vetted. You had a reason to trust it. It was a little easier to validate that information versus today. Now, getting back to what Phil's asking, everything is moving at this crazy pace. It's coming at warp speed towards us. And it's tough to even figure out where you start to digest information. And like you said, like it's easy for me to think, oh, if you just follow my YouTube journey from the beginning, you'll see how I got to where I am today. But there's no way somebody who's getting into fly tying or fly fishing today can go back, watch my video number one, and eventually get caught up. It's impossible. And I think that's part of the issue, not issue, but just part of the reality of why there is such a steep learning curve. And I guess to kind of go back to the book, one of the reasons that Jay Nichols approached me was he, he's like, Tim, there's not really a lot of fly time books being pushed out there right now that pull everything together. And that, that was kind of the thought process behind my book. For someone who's into social media, if you're scrolling on Instagram and you're looking at all these flies and you say, where do I start? What do you start with? Do you pick that A fly or B fly or C fly? Like, where do you go? What techniques do you need? What materials? And that's why we try to find a way to select patterns in that book. That if you're able to tie these baker's dozen of patterns, you should be able to tie pretty efficiently about 80 to 90% of the patterns you're seeing on social media today. So that yeah. was kind of the selling point of the book. Now, I think you asked about resources. Do you want to get into that right now? Or do you have any more thoughts about that? Because I don't want to jump ahead. Because I think you and I could talk about this one all night. Yeah, yeah. There are so many. But I think, you know, the videos like you do are – and others, too. You know, Kelly Gallup does some great tying videos, and there's plenty more people out there that do them. But those are invaluable. I mean, it's like having a mentor, you know, sitting in front of you and helping you out. And I didn't have that. I, I was just trying to find – I still have it somewhere on a bookshelf here. But I think the book first book I got was Jack Dennis's Western Trout Flying mm -hmm. Tying Manual. Yeah. And, I mean, that – like I'm looking at here, it says first edition, January 1974. So that was one of the first books I ever had on fly tying, and I kind of wore that baby out. <laughs> but it's still here, dog-eared, and, and on a shelf somewhere. But there are so many, and the books now, uh, we've got a lot of great books out there, and, you know, more advanced stuff. Like you said, your book is focused on getting started, which, you know, a lot of people listening tonight are probably very interested in. But, yeah, I mean, we've been talking uh, on Clubhouse recently, a new social media app, kind of taking a break for the summer because everybody seems to be out fishing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we'll probably start that back up in the fall. But we've had a lot of fun talking there about fly tying as well and fly fishing. So, yeah, there's tons of resources. So what didn't I mention? You got some others you want to share? Yeah, of course. I mean, I agree with you. I think YouTube is a, it's a phenomenal resource. That's kind of my bread and butter. That's where I, I kind of like to live there. There's some great tires on YouTube. And for anyone who's listening, by all means, reach out to me through my website or through social media, and I can recommend some tires depending on what species you're chasing and the flies you want to tie because there's a, a bunch of them. I also recommend to people, I mean, see if you have a local fly shop in your area or even a local yep. fly fishing or fly tying club because they exist and 
and if you have one, it, it is really nice to, now that we're you know moving away from the pandemic to get back, connect with people, and it's great to have somebody give you some constructive feedback on your patterns. And then the other resource that I recommend quite frequently is through social media, but it's called a Facebook group. Through Facebook, I mean, which you know, there's lots of positives and negatives to all social media right now, but within Facebook, there are these groups. And for instance, if you type in like a, a fly time group, whenever you're logged into Facebook, there are hundreds of groups that are just there for fly time. And what's great about those groups is you can become a member of them and start to interact with the other fly tires. And basically, you're kind of pulled into this community of whatever that group is. And there are some people who are very active within 10 groups, and there's some people who just live in one group, and that's the group where they really like to communicate with others. But it's from those groups that a lot of people, maybe who are otherwise, you know, unsure of sharing their patterns publicly or putting it on their main profile to, to ask for feedback because they're afraid, you know, some people just aren't extremely courteous on social media. But whenever you're within one of those groups, you know, you've connected with people and you can say to somebody, hey, can I send you a private message and share this waltz worm that I just tied and can you give me some feedback on it and let me know what you think. And Facebook groups, it's a really great avenue, especially for people who don't have a lot of other fellow tires in their area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're out remote and can't get to a club, but yeah, clubs are always great because most all of the people that are in clubs are there ready and willing and able to, to show mm -hmm. you and help you out. Yeah, I even ran into a, a group on Facebook not too long ago, a group that is using monkey hair to tie flies. And the whole oh, group man. is about monkey hair. And I've got, what? I've never heard of people using monkey hair. First of all, where did they get the monkey hair? <laughs> I have <laughs> some. Just, I, I, uh, do you? Roger, I have some. I've got to join this group. I don't know what to do with it. It's oh, like or something. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. It was kind of disturbing to me. I mean, yeah. where do you get monkey hair from? I mean, it's kind of close to home, <laughs> you know, DNA-wise, right? <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> I, it was left to me from a fellow fly tire whenever he passed. He was one of my mentors. Uh, Doc oh. Cole was his name, and, and it was in all this, these packages. He left all this fly tying stuff for me, and I'm going through it, and I'm like, what is this monkey hair? It was from, gosh, I think it was from Herders back in the 60s, maybe, something oh, like geez. that. And it's a that old, old oh. package. Yeah, oh, oh it's really old. So I hope it's legal to possess. Let's put it that way. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, there's all kinds of groups on Facebook, so that was the, oh, wow. the point of that. But, yeah, okay. another great resource. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start talking about some of the different tools and stuff that are kind of essential to get started, and some that are not so essential but would be nice to have. So we'll talk about that as soon as we come back. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charliesleslieflyfishing.com. Again, that's charliesleslieflyfishing.com. Or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634.
You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Tim Camisa about fly tying for everyone. If you'd like to ask Tim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll try to answer as many of them as we can on the show tonight. Let me just check in on that uh, real quick here. Gil in Brea, California, you want to know what were the first flies you tied. Do you remember? I don't necessarily remember the exact first one, but I can tell you I still have this fishing tackle box of the flies that I tied in that class, and the ones that are the most valued to me are the ones with the spun deer hair. So, yeah, Gil, it was that spinning deer hair, which I don't do as much anymore, but at the time that was like my – that was the gateway drug into fly tying and fly fishing for me. Yeah, when you pull on that thread and it goes whoop, and <laughs> it's oh, yeah. kind of magical. So cool. Yeah, I remember when I got my thing early on, I think it was fifth or sixth grade, it was photography. And I just remember we were living in Alaska, and I remember in the dark room and making my first black and white print and watching the image appear. To me, that's kind of like deer hair spinning. You know, yeah. it's like, wow, I'm hooked. Yeah, it's one of those telling moments for sure. Let's talk about uh, the different tools. And as we go through this, I think it's worth kind of mentioning that there are tools that kind of span the, the range of, you know, that, that cost more money or less money. Some of them, I think, in my experience, are worth the extra money long term because if you have something super cheap, you may be struggling. So I'd kind of like to, you know, when you talk about these, kind of keep that in mind to, to share with people. And it's like having a sharp scissors is very useful <laughs> rather than the, the old worn-out one in the, in the utility drawer in your kitchen or something, you know. So, uh, so let's kind of keep that in mind. But there are other th everyday things that it doesn't really matter. So anyway, let's start out with Dan's question. He's out in Illinois, and we can kind of begin the talk on fly-tying vices. And he says, what's a good fly-tying vice? for a beginner, and I've heard your spiel on this before, so <laughs> I'm prepared, <laughs> so uh, oh, go for it, and we've got a follow-up question here talking about going from a vice a guy's been using for a long time, and where do you go from here, so maybe we can kind of cover both questions as we talk, so what yeah, is you your recommendation for a beginner? You have heard my spiel, so I know we, we have talked about this on Clubhouse before, <laughs> and I can tell you the the first chapter of the book goes into what I call the 21st century of fly tying. Welcome to it, because we're so fortunate. There's so many incredible pools out there that we didn't have access to even 20 years ago, and it's awesome now that we have these. Now, to answer Dan's question, I actually made a YouTube video on this talking about fly tying vices, because out of all the emails that I get on a regular basis, I get so many about vices, because they're confusing. There's different types of vices. They're at different price points. They do different things. Some of them look crazy. I recently was showing my great-uncle John one of my vices. He looked at it. He was like, I've never seen that before. Like, tell me about this vice. And he's been tying his whole life. So it's really it's tough. So, Dan, that's a great question. And I would probably first ask you, what's your budget? Because you really have to pick a price and then start your research. Because I can tell you my first vice, it did nothing. It was a hand-me-down vice. It was so ugly. It was a sneak clamp. It didn't rotate. It basically, it held a hook, kind of. I mean, it got me through X amount of years, but it was a vice. And it just did what it was supposed to do. It held a hook. Because that's really the point of a vice. Let's be honest, Roger. I mean, it, it's yeah. out there to hold a hook. So 
what I recommend to people, first, figure out what kind of hooks it's going to hold. Are we talking trout flies? Is it going to be smaller? Are we talking pike and muskie? Are we going saltwater? So I think the first thing you have to really determine is what type of hook is it going to hold and what's your price range? Pick a range and kind of start your research from there. But as I tell people, you have to be careful because if I ask 10 different people for their opinions, I'm probably going to end up with 15 different vices. And it's tricky. And I mention this a lot in the book, and I really I feel strongly about this. A vice is very personal. It's the vice that, that you've tied on for X amount of years with X amount of patterns. And if you – I still have my original vice, that one that I told you about, the hand-me-down. And I wouldn't sell that vice for any amount in the world because it was my first vice. It got me into this. I, like, I still tie on it every year. But it wasn't a good vice. I mean, if Dan said, hey, Tim, can I have that vice just to try out? Like, he's going to mail it back to me as soon as he can. It wasn't a great vice. So my recommendation, Dan, is at least try to start at the 100 to $150 range if you believe you're going to stick with fly tying. And I would start your research around there based upon the species you're going to chase. Now, the other option that a lot of people do begin with, I want to say my second vice was one of these little vice kits from maybe it was Cabela's or Bass Pro Shops. I don't know the exact one, but it's one of those ones, Roger, you've probably seen them. They come in a little wood case, and it's a little vice that screws into position. It's not a very good vice, but what's nice about that vice is that it comes with all these tools. They are not high-quality tools, but for the price of maybe $50, you have all the basic tools. 3622 Is that what it's going for, right? Yeah, it's, on it's Amazon cheap. right now. I'm looking at okay, it. Yeah. That, yeah, it's a cheap little set. I had one. I teach fly tying classes with students at my school, and a lot of them will use that one. It, it's complicated. It's not as great as a 100 to $150 vice, but it at least gets you started. It gets you in the game. You have all these basic tools. And if, if you use it for a couple months and you're like, you know what, I kind of like this. Like, you're not out a lot of money and, and you yeah. have your starter tools and then you can start upgrading from that point. So I hope that kind of makes sense, Dan, but it's really subjective as to where your price range is and, and what species you're chasing. Yeah, because if you're going to be really focusing on the salt, you know, you're going to want a heavier duty vice that holds bigger hooks. You know, if it's trout, then you don't need a big vice like that. And or you don't need the extra jaws that you might be able to buy for your vice to do, you know, to tie those kind of flies. So, yeah, and there, the ones like you say, from 150 on up to what? I think there's some in the five to six hundred dollar range as well. But from 150 up, I think you know you're getting a pretty high tech in this day and age, a pretty high tech piece of gear. But I think mine was less than 10 bucks when I had my first one. I mean, I was in junior <laughs> high school. I couldn't afford anything. You know? <laughs> mine was free. No, mine was free, yeah. and I was happy to have it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, back then we'd do anything to, you know, roadkill anything to get feathers. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So I think that's good advice. And maybe go to one of the club settings and see what people are tying on. Maybe they'll let you try it. Uh, go to the fly fishing shows. And you'll see all kinds of different vices lined up on the fly tires row, right? I mean, everybody's using oh, yeah. something different. And then you go to each company, and each one has, you know, maybe three to six different models. So, yeah, it can be intimidating, to say the least. What are some There's of the features? There's no doubt. Yeah. What are some of the features that, you look for an advice that you think people should pay attention to when buying? Yeah, that's a good question, Roger. I mean, without a doubt, I prefer to, 
to look for rotary vices. It doesn't have to necessarily be a true rotary, but I want a vice that I, it allows me to look at all sides of the fly and, and around the hook as much as possible because I really like to see everything that's going on on both sides, underneath, just all around. So to me, that's the key. But there are times where, and I guess going back to Dan's question, I have a video out there that's called Which Fly Time Vice Should I Buy? And I, and I would recommend him and anyone else who's considering to at least watch that video to, to get some information about the different features of all the vices out there because I think you brought up a, a great point. You notice that some companies have different tiers of vices. And it's interesting because there are some where it's obvious that this is a lower quality vice. You may, maybe the jaws are a little more basic versus maybe their top end vice, it, it ties a greater range of flies. But there's other companies where if you look at their range of flies, every vice has the same set of jaws. So they can tie the exact same range of flies, and we'll say from a size 4 to a size 28. We'll just pick up those random numbers. Yet one is $400, and the intro one is $175. So what's the difference? And, and yeah. typically, it's, it's basically aesthetic. Maybe they're higher quality materials that are used. Uh, maybe it comes with a C-clamp and a pedestal. You know, maybe there's something that's, maybe it comes with an extra set of jaws, or maybe they have more accessories with some of their higher-end ones. You do have to kind of do a little bit of research when you're in there. So for me, I kind of look at it from a couple standpoints, because I love true rotary vices, stuff like Sanfo Transformer or Renzetti. They're great because they're full rotary. And they kind of tie a little bit faster, at least in my opinion, and they really have great access to the hook. But then whenever I think about what kind of a, a tension vice, something like a Regal, a Stontro Cayman, they're so easy to use. You just pull one lever, put your hook in, and you're off and running. But then there's yeah. consequences of each, you know, because if you have something that's, you know, when you have these tension devices, they hold that hook under such pressure that it's very easy. If you put the hook in wrong, it could ping away. And there's also some of the vices that, that are under tension that if you try to open them, it can be difficult to open them, which if you look back at the full rotary vices, then you have the issue where you have to adjust the vices first, make these little adjustments, and lock it in place with the camps. There's not one perfect vice out there. That's the one thing yeah. I do want to kind of comment on. And I use multiple vices. I even have a nor vice. So it's, it depends on where I am in my house, which vice I'm tying on at that moment. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I've got a Norvice, too, and I've got a Renzetti here. But I think the other thing that people should think about, when we, you just mentioned bases. You know, do you use a C-clamp base or a, a pedestal base? That might You might want to think about that for just where you're tying. Maybe you can't use a C-clamp on your nice dining room table. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've got to have a pedestal vice, otherwise you're going to get in yeah. trouble. I mean, little things like that. Or if you're spinning deer hair or tying salt water where you're, kind of, you know, tugging on that thread rather aggressively, you might need something more stable or stronger set of jaws or those kinds of things. So really, yeah, I think the first thing you got to look at is what am I going to tie? Am I going to be tying trout flies, small ones, or am I going to be tying big flies or bass bugs? And all that makes a difference. That's why you need 16 vices. <laughs> exactly. exactly. No, no, we don't want to scare anybody off here. Ron McNeil asks, what single tool has been part of your kit for the longest time? That's an interesting question. Oh, that's really cool, Ron. I mean, let's get away from the obvious, the essentials. I mean, we can't talk about the vice, uh, the bobbin, scissors, that type of stuff. I would say, gosh, probably the one tool that, that I think should be a part of everyone's kit from the beginning is a razor blade. Because I think we have to be honest with ourselves, and sometimes we tie flies that are 
probably not to the best quality, and we can do better. And there are so many times that I tied a fly, I was in a rush, or I was just younger. It was a fly, and instead of pushing myself to say, hey, let's take a step back, let's cut everything off and try that one again because my proportions were off, I didn't. And now that's something I'm really cognizant of. I really stress with others. I mean, if you have, you've just tied three patterns that are supposed to be the same and you put them next to each other and one of them is really out there or maybe one of them, you can't get the tippet through your eye. I mean, don't put it in your box. I mean, there's nothing worse than being in the middle of a hatch situation and there's fish rising all over you. It's getting to be low light and you're trying to put 6X through this hook eye and you don't want to turn on your light because you don't want to scare the fish and you have no idea, but there's no way it's going to go through because you have a bunch of hackle and dubbing that's covering it up and, and you don't realize it. Don't hesitate to say, you know what, I can do better. Use that razor blade, cut it off, and, and start all over again. Yeah, you know who also promotes that concept is uh, Charlie Craven, who's a master tire. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he told me and told new tires, hey, if it's not right, cut it off. Do it again. You know, get it right. And that's how you learn is repetitiveness. It's not going to cost you that much in materials, right, for a little fly or something. So, yeah, and I think that's um, advice well given. Bobbins. <laughs> Bobbins are almost like vices these days, it seems like. There's a lot of different ones. Some I found that are easier to use than others. So what's your take on, on bobbins? How do they differ and which ones do you like? Gosh, well, for new tires out there, I mean, when I recommend thinking about a bobbin, I mean, the entire gist is you want to be able to allow your thread to be placed on the hook under tension. So you want it to be able to kind of manipulate in a sense Whenever I think about bobbins, I really prefer those that have a ceramic insert. That's my number one. I want some type of an insert in there that will prevent the fraying of your thread. I'm going to go down that path. I also love bobbins that allow for a quick change because there are a lot of them out there have drag systems on them, and I love the ones with drag systems. I primarily use those ones. My favorite bobbin right now, it's what I'm using all the time. Every one of my videos features it. It's called the Stonfo Bobtech Bobbin. And what's great about it is that it has this tension adjustment on the stem. But because it's on the stem, you can quickly take the spool off and change colors if you need to. And that's kind of what I like to do, even though probably just like you, Roger, I'm a fly time junkie. I mean, I have like 20 bobbins set up at all times, so I pretty much have every color and every size I need ready to go. But there's still, you know, instances where I need chartreuse. I don't have one with chartreuse. And, And even though I love, like, the right bobbin, for instance, I don't want to take that couple minutes to unscrew it, take everything out, and, and put a new bobbin on, or a new spool of thread on and get it all ready to go again. Like, it, it's a great bobbin. I love it. I have, you know, a couple of those. I have some Stonefo Elite bobbins. But sometimes there's just something nice about having a bobbin with these two stems, and you can just do a quick change with it, and you're off and running. That would be my advice for others, but probably like you too, I have a bunch of cheapy ones that I found at fly fishing shows that have a ceramic insert that goes the whole way from the top to the bottom and they work fine, too. So what was the one that you said, the Stonfo, what, what was it that you're, you're liking? It's called, yeah, it's called the Stonfo Bobtech Bobbin. It's spelled B-O-B-T-E-C. Oh, it's a I really they have, cool one. They have a one and a two. They look pretty similar. I'm just looking at them. I think they're different sizes. I tend to recommend the one. I believe the two is a larger size. For like yeah, heavy duty. Larger flies. Yeah, yeah heavy duty it. tube, it says, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and by the way, you don't really need a vice or a, a bobbin. <laughs> I know a guy <laughs> that Spencer Seam, 
down in New Mexico who ties oh, yeah. classic salmon flies in his hands. Novi, Snow Bobbin, does it all within his hands. It's amazing. In fact, he was the guy that inspired, and we did a show with him. If you search Spencer Seam in our archive, you'll find the show we did with him. But he was the one that inspired Kirk Johnson to write The Feather Thief, which is an interesting oh, yeah. story about that whole, how that came about. But that totally amazes me that people can do all that with just their hands and their fingers. So if you really want to go basic, you can try <laughs> Kind of hard to do with the size uh, 22, but it can be done. Cement, epoxy, Charles Rogers in South Carolina says, how do you know which cement epoxy to use and when? If you could only had one or two cements in your five-time box, which one would you choose? Ooh, good question, Charles. Thanks for that one. I've now gone over to the UV resin side. I really love UV resins simply because they cure in a really fast amount of time. I tend to use those in nearly every application unless the resin can't be cured with a UV light. Then I'm going with epoxy. The one kind of interesting aspect of these UV resins is that there are so many different brands of resins out there. There's all these different viscosities, and that's kind of what leads to the selection. I mean, you have some slow-moving resins, some that are really liquidy, and you really have to just decide on, on what type of application you're using it on. So, for instance, something that maybe I want to use a little bit of res resin to build up the head of a, a pike fly or a musky fly. Then I'm going to use something that's a little bit of a thicker one that doesn't move around much and won't be absorbed into the material versus if I'm tying a paradigm and I want to cover the entire body with resin, but to keep it as thin as possible, then I'm going to use something that's very liquid-like, kind of like water in a sense and cure it as quick as I can. I guess, and I think he asked if I could only have one or two. My favorite one, it's plain and simple, it's called Solary Bone Dry, and it's more of the liquid viscosity, so I use it on so many different applications. I use it to cover like the bodies of flies that are very slender, like a quill body fly or a dry fly or a wet fly. I use it on a lot of my Euro nymphs, like a Paradigon. Uh, what's cool about it, you can also take the brush and brush it on your thread then whip finish, and then hit the head of your fly with a UV light, and it will cure it that way. It's really cool stuff, and I just tend to use that Solaris in so many different aspects of my time. So if I was going to recommend one brand, I would go with that. The other kind of consideration I do want to give with UV resins, and, and I have not talked to an ophthalmologist about this, but anytime I'm using my UV light, I really prefer to I kind of cover it with my hand. So, you know, the light's shining on whatever that spot is, but I'm not getting any reflection into my eyes. And I try to use all my UV resins in more of a well-ventilated area. So I at least want to throw out that caveat, too. Yeah, yeah, that's an it. I hadn't thought about that, but that's something to find out about is if, I mean, obviously you shouldn't look into it, but uh, I'm just wondering if the ambient light coming from that is at all concerning. But, yeah, interesting. So there are other tools in your book, you know, one of go through each one of them and they can read the book and find out but the things we've talked about with thread and you know some kind of uh, cement or, or a resin device the other thing we didn't really talk about were hooks pretty essential thing <laughs> yeah yeah what are your thoughts on getting started with hooks and what should people be looking for or and how should they buy gosh hooks are almost as complicating as vices are, and which I get it. I'm sure you and I, if, if I say to you, Roger, must add 94840, you know what that means. Because yeah. whenever we, you know, back in the, the late 80s, the early 90s, like there were so few hooks out there that 
we just kind of knew all the numbers of the hooks that the majority of people tended to use. And over the years, manufacturers, they've tried to give us what we want. But there's also been an influx of other manufacturers. There's been an influx of lots of hooks coming from a couple countries, and they're selling them so cheap to, to fly shops and to individuals that you can buy the same hook marketed under about 20 different names, which is really frustrating to know. It's all the same. They're, all these individuals are selling the exact same hook, but they're all calling it something different. So yeah. I get it. I really feel bad for I don't want to say I feel bad for people, but just like anything else, you just have to kind of sort through everything and try to figure out which direction you're going to go. I mean, my first piece of advice is buy the best hook that you can afford. And it's, it's easier for me to say that now than whenever I was, you know, 16 years old placing a $30 order to Cabela's over the phone because and trying to maximize the value of the hooks. But I also know that I've lost a number of hooks earlier on in my – or I've lost a number of fish earlier on in my career because of a cheap hook. And I still remember some of those fish. And there's nothing worse than losing the fish of a lifetime because you skimped a few pennies on a hook. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. I mean, there's, only, there's so many things that we can control in fly fishing and fly tying. So try to control those that we're able to. So I would say go start out with the best ones that you can afford and try to stick with just one or two brands. That's what I tend to do. I mean, even knowing there's all these different options out there, there are only a few brands that I really stick with because I've had success with the brands and because I also understand their, the way that they make their hooks. I understand their sizing because even though there's lots of, we'll say a jig hook in a size 16 out there, you can measure four different companies' size 16 jig hooks, and they're all different dimensions. Mm-hmm. So we think that standard, but it's not standard. I mean, let's be honest, in fly fishing, we can go and we can use a micrometer on a bunch of different 5X from various brands, and they're supposed to all be the same dimension, and they're not. So if that yeah. stuff's not, then there's, there's no way hooks can be. So I would at least try to narrow it down, sort through, and look over it. If you're fishing a dry fly, a lot of the manufacturers will at least say, this is a dry fly hook, but they'll have various like niches and various styles within there. So you just have to learn a little bit more about the patterns you're tying. And the one recommendation that I love to give to others is try to opt for barbless hooks. Um, I think it's just more of the better way to go. And all the books that are tied in my book, or I'm sorry, all the, the, the flies that are tied in my book are tied on barbless patterns because that's what I fish. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is confusing. And one thing I would, I would encourage tires to do in their recipes and so forth is when they, because this is how you learn the hooks, at least I do, you know, the, Tim Camisa ties a, a mop fly and he used a certain kind of hook. Well, why did he use that hook? I mean, why that hook over other hooks? And sometimes it's obvious. Other times it's not so obvious. But I've noticed that some of the, the pro tires out there will talk about that, and I really appreciate it. Like the reason I'm using a XYZ hook with the larger gap is for better hooking ability because, you know, the fly is bulky, and I need that extra gap to be able to – I mean, that's interesting stuff to know to me but it's not always shared. It's just I use a XYZ 7460 and on we go, you know, and, and they never really talk about that. So anyway, it is one of my things that I appreciate when people talk about the why, you know, when they talk about hooks. But um, yeah, let me Roger, take a, let's, yeah, go ahead. I'll say one quick thing and, and kind of to stick with what you're just mentioning. And I would recommend this to people out there, if, especially those of you who are newer into fly time, if you see somebody tie a fly, if it's online especially, and you, you look at this and you're like, I want to know why they selected that hook. 
we're in a really fortunate place in the world of social media because you can message so many individuals and they'll get back to you and tell you. Like people that I know I had no access to whenever I was younger, like you can send them a message now and they reply. And it doesn't matter who you are. Like that to me is the wild part about it. So don't hesitate to reach out to some of these tires and just say, hey, I notice you use this hook from this brand. I have this hook from this brand. Do you think that's okay to use it even though it's not the same? And I can tell you 99% of the time they're going to reply and and 99% of the time they're going to say it's absolutely fine. Go with it. Yeah, yeah. I've got – I created a chart for myself of the different manufacturers and which hooks are similar to each other's. So i got a whole spreadsheet. (laughs) So when somebody uses that, I can cross – I may have something like that already. So let me look, and many times you can cross-reference them. Yeah. Let me take a quick break, and we'll come right back. We'll start talking about some materials and techniques here. So here we go. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi Flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want to tie Want your flies tied for you, or you'd like to tie them yourself, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com. Again, that's epflies.com, and do a little shopping today. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tim Camisa about fly tying for everyone. So uh, if you want to ask him a question, Go to our homepage, fill out that form, and we'll try to answer the question tonight. Let me, uh, yeah, a couple. Yeah, one of the other things Phil wrote in, dubbing loops. That's, yeah, kind of next step down the road to tying. It would be nice to have one of those tools as well. But let's talk about materials some here. Um, there's many kinds of hooks, but we're Don here, Let's take Don's question here. He says, I've come to realize that the choice of thread can make tying a particular pattern easier or not, but lack sufficient understanding of threads to know which is best for a particular pattern. When I don't have the particular make or thickness of thread called for in the fly recipe, can you provide instruction on how to select the best thread for various types and sizes of flies? I can try my best, Don. Thanks for the question. If we're being honest, And we say to ourselves, can we get by with just a couple colors of thread in a few sizes? The short answer is yes, because in reality, if we just have two colors, black and white, we would probably be good to go because the majority of patterns can use black on them. And then the the other flies that are left over, you can use white. And when you get to a point where the thread's going to be seen, you can color it with a Sharpie first and then tie it in. So if we were being in a point where we're trying to, to really reduce everything we're using, I would just go with those two colors, and you would be great. But that's not the direction I tie in. So even though I say that, that's not (laughs) what I do. So I'll go in with – to answer his question, I tend to go with thread that's sized almost too small. I mean, for example, Gunnar Bramer, he wrote one of the reviews of my book, and he wanted to read about the articulated streamer that I tied. So I sent him that section. And I remember he sent me this text, and it was like, man, those are some small hooks, and that is really small thread. Because I was tying with, I believe, like 18-aught nano silk. And just for those people who are either newer to tire or who aren't tires out there but are curious, 18 is a very small size whenever you say 18-aught, unlike a hook size. And it's, it's minuscule. But 
I carry really small size threads with me because it's easier to travel. I like to travel so much. But the threads that we now have are this, it's called the GSP thread, which is a gel spun polyethylene. And it, it's extremely resilient. It's very tough to cut. And by using really strong threads that, that are more difficult to break, you're going to be better off in the long run. I mean, the two sides, if I was going to recommend one size to people, I would recommend 12 watt Semperfly Nano Silk. That would be the thread that I would recommend to start for those who are tying smaller flies, trout patterns in that range. For those people who are like, you know what, I've heard about this Nano Silk from Semperfly, but maybe I don't need anything that's that resilient, then another great starting thread for people is something like 6 aught thread. 6 aught thread is really nice because you can also cord it, which means you can spin your bobbin in a clockwise position, and it will actually stretch in a sense, and it will become a little bit more of a finer diameter. I believe it was AK Best that would pretty much always use 6 aught, and then when he needed it to be thinner, he would just spin his bobbin, and it would go to a thinner diameter, then he would uncord or spin the, the bobbin in the opposite direction, and it would go back to its original size 6 aught. So that would kind of, whenever I go back to Don's question, Selecting thread is really difficult, because, especially at the beginning, because as you and I have both been there, Roger, and it sounds like maybe Don has too, there's nothing worse than you're just getting into fly tying, you're following the steps to this pattern, and you get the whole way to the end, and you're looking over the directions on how to whip finish, and you go back, you start to get your knot in, and you pull down on your thread, and it snaps, and your entire fly just comes apart in front of your eyes. And there's nothing you can do but just, just look at it and, and be horrified. I really like to encourage people at the beginning, go with the largest thread that you're comfortable tying with that won't interfere with the overall pattern. Something like a 6 aught or maybe a 3 aught if you're into streamers. And then as you become more and more comfortable, more competent with thread tension, start to, to really integrate those smaller sizes. But that Semperfly Nano Silk, it is something else. And if people haven't used it yet, I am an ambassador for Semperfly, so I want to say that. But one of the main reasons I'm an ambassador is because of this, this thread. So check out their nano silk. It's some really special stuff. There you go. There you go. Well, we've been talking a lot here, Tim. <laughs> Time is flying by. So um, I want to uh, I want to hit a couple. I want to talk about feathers and stuff, but I want to hit a couple of questions that came in from the audience to make sure that they get answered. One was from Dino. He said, fish don't seem to appreciate my improvements in fly tying. When I started tying flies 40 years ago and made crude flies with wrong proportions, I caught more fish with them than with my current refined flies. How much do you think fly fish care about perfect flies and, and presentation as opposed to luck and persistence? <laughs> I love the question, Dino. First of all, I think fish care more about presentation than anything else that you mentioned. So that would be the first thing I'd say. I believe the presentation of the pattern really kind of trumps everything else. Now, to, to go back about his flies that he tied 40 years ago, I think he's kind of getting to the point of ugly flies catch fish too. And I've seen that. I've seen it on stickers and on shirts, and they do. They don't catch me, though. And here's what I would kind of first kind of possibly argue with Dino. I would bet the fish he's trying for today are maybe more selective, maybe more pressured, or not in the abundance of the fish that Dino was catching 40 years ago. So I would probably start with that argument. But let's just say all things are even. The reason that I would at least encourage Dino and encourage others to tie the best flies that they can is really simple, and it comes down to confidence. Because if I say that to everybody, presentation really matters the most, you have to have confidence in that pattern to make that presentation. 
So whenever I look in my box and I see flies that I tied well that, that look the way that I at least expect them to look because I was tying them to imitate something, whenever I place that fly on my tippet, I have a little bit more confidence in that fly, and I'm going to fish it better. And I know because that's the way that I operate. But there are times where I look at a fly and I, and I think to myself, yeah, that one's all right. I mean, it, it's okay. Kind of like what Dino says. It's probably not the best. It's maybe a little crude. Maybe it's an ugly fly. I'm going to throw this on and just kind of look to luck and persistence with this one. Fish it for 10 minutes. I didn't catch a fish. I'm going to put it back in. Now, the only other aspect of this that I think is kind of interesting is there are some patterns, and I know you've had this experience too, Roger, that after you've used them for a while and you've caught fish on them and they've gotten more crude in a sense and they've gotten beat up and they just start to almost look like they're deteriorating, they seem to catch more fish with, and especially with like emergers and dry flies. But overall, I mean, at the beginning, I, I try to make my flies, I want them to look a certain way and whenever I tie them, they should look that way. And if not, I'll go back to what I said before, there's a razor blade that I have that will come out. Yep, yep. Good. Phil in, in Kentucky asks, what are the essential tying skills that Tim thinks all of us should focus on to create fish-catching flies that hold together well? So the key is hold together well. Anything you do to, to make your flies last longer? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. Uh, lots of super glue. I put super glue all <laughs> over them. They, they... <laughs> no, I'm kidding, um, <laughs> but I do. I would say probably the biggest, the greatest technique at the beginning is to understand your thread tension and just to understand how you should lock in your materials because each material is different and there's different ways of locking them in. Take, for example, a hackle. I mean, I love to tie hackled patterns. And when you're locking in hackle, like the butt ends of a, we'll say a saddle hackle, there are multiple ways to, to lock them in. I mean, my uncle is one of the people that, he likes to trim it, but he likes to leave those butt fibers just out just a little bit because he feels that his thread will kind of grab them and hold them in place. So just those, those little ways of locking in different materials, that's something that I would focus on just to say, how can I lock in these materials so they won't come out? I think I've already talked a little bit about the notion of cording or uncording your thread, which means to spin it in different directions. And there's many times, even throughout this book, I know I've taught that in a couple sections where I'll cord thread for a specific purpose because it might bind something down a little bit more. And there's other situations where I'll uncord the thread to allow it to be a little bit more flat because I'm going for a different profile or a different look. So I think that cording and uncording is something that a lot of intermediate to advanced tires do that a lot of, you know, we'll say beginner to intermediate tires don't even know about. So I would also point people in that direction if you're at the intermediate level because in the book, I mean, it's called Fly Tying for Everyone. That was part of the goal. It wasn't just for someone who's new to fly tying to walk right into it. I mean, the first pattern that's, that's being tied is a CDC uh, dry fly. I mean, it, it comes right out of the gate with more of a beginner to intermediate pattern. It, it, this isn't a book that you're going to get to tie step one to step two to step three. You're going to have that with each pattern, but there's a lot of techniques that are built into this book to help people at different levels. And then the last thing to, to answer Phil's question, you know, I do use whip finish, I would finish every fly at the end, and I used head cement or glue on my thread of nearly every fly. Not necessarily always my dry flies, but for nymphs, for streamers, uh, for wet flies that are going to be down on the bottom getting beat up you know, along the rocks, I want to make sure that final knot, even if it's tight, I, I want a little bit of adhesive to kind of help hold things together. Great. Let's talk about how you're teaching in your book. You broke down 
the flies you tied into dry flies, mergers, nymphs, and streamers. And what I'd like to do, and, is, and so we can cover as much of this as possible, but have you pick one of the flies that you, you put in your book, Tim, and talk about it a bit, like, you know, why you picked it, what one will learn from it, techniques that they might use for other flies down the road, how you might fish it. So pick one for the dries and, and tell us about it. Well, you got it. So I believe the first dry fly in the book is called a corn-fed caddis. It's a pattern that was created by Lance Egan. I selected this fly because to kind of pull in all the flies, I first wanted to make sure that they were patterns that caught fish. So that's number one. So even though the, the entire gist is that you can learn from these patterns and the techniques can transfer to others, I still wanted people to know if you tied this corn-fed caddis, you can catch fish on it. It kind of straddles uh, a merger to a dry fly because it sits closer in, into the film, which kind of represents either an adult dry fly or a fly that's emerging from the bottom. So it kind of sits there. It has a lot of CDC built into it. So throughout that section, we talk about the importance of materials that move naturally because there's so many flies out there or insects. Like right now, you know, the cicada has really generated a lot of buzz. And there's some cicadas that when they're on the water, they move. And we have to almost twitch our rod or twitch our, our tippet to kind of show a little bit of that movement to the fish. And that's difficult for a lot of people to do. So in the corn-fed caddis, we're talking about some CDC within here. And it's a material that will kind of move on its own. So it kind of shows a little bit of life in the fly. When I think about the techniques in that pattern, it's known for its dubbing loop. So, you know, we come right out of the gate. I explain the notion of what a dubbing loop is. And instead of just putting in, you know, we'll say dubbing, as most people expect, this fly has CDC in the dubbing loop. At the head, at the thorax, you create a dubbing loop. You load it up with CDC. Um, you spin that and it just makes all these fibers just go all over the place. And then when you wind it forward, you've now created a pattern that has just a ton of movement at the front of the fly, so it looks very realistic, but that's also a natural material that floats. So there, you know, there's just a lot of components that are built into this in terms of the materials, uh, in terms of the ribbing, because going back to, I think it was Phil's question, we counter-rib we counter this with, I think this one's just used with thread, but you could also counter-rib it with something like a fluorocarbon or a monofilament to provide even more protection to the pattern. So those are some of the techniques that are built into this one. Yeah, lots of CDC in that pattern, that's for sure. Yeah, and you yeah. you wrap the dubbing group, you, you wrap the CD, so it's almost like a hackle, you know, in exactly. the front of the fly. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I've not fished that fly. I'm going to have to try that one. <laughs> it it's looks yummy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it looks yummy. Okay, well, let's talk about emergers. Oh, Pick man. one out of your book. Gosh, I won't lie. I love emergers. There's something that's, I, you know, I give presentations around the country. My most popular presentation is always the one on emergers because it's where fish kind of, they show their vulnerability because they know this flies in a vulnerable position, and they just kind of kind of lose their abandon, just go after them all the time. And, and it's kind of like a dry fly. So I love emergers. The fly that I would kind of reference here is called the Pleva shuttlecock. It's a fly that was originally shared with me by Devin Olson. He's a member of Fly Fishing Team USA. I believe you've interviewed him before. So I, oh, yeah. I would absolutely encourage people to check the archives. I think he's probably been on your show more than once. Does that sound right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know, maybe four or five times, something. Yeah. yeah he's just a, he's a wealth of knowledge. And this is one of the flies. It's called the Pleva shuttlecock that really performed well for him in a certain competition a number of years ago. 
And when you look at it, it looks to be a relatively basic pattern, but there's some unique things going on. For instance, there's kind of a hot spot that's built into the rear, and it's called a tag on this fly. And it's made with this certain mid-flash material. So it kind of gives the illusion that there's something going on that whenever we think about hot spots, they tend to be closer to the thorax. So in this case, we have a hot spot, but it's somewhere else. The other neat thing about this pattern, there's a little bit of contrast built into the body where it's, we're using two shades of green. But what's neat about it from a tying perspective is that when you look at this body, you think to yourself, oh, this isn't that difficult to tie. But if you just if you don't understand the complexities of cording and uncording thread, it's very difficult to get on a size 16 or even a size 18 if you want to go that small. The one in the book was tied on a size 18. It's really tough to get ribbing to, to show and to make a true contrast, but it was accomplished by this technique called cording. So I got this really cool picture of a bobbin being spun to show the notion of what to do when you're cording thread. And in that picture, and if you see, if you have the book in front of you, Roger, that's the Stonefield Bobtech. And what I like about it, because it, it, you can use it, and it spins perfectly. That's another one of the selling points of that oh. bobbin. Um, yeah. yeah. And to kind of finish off the fly, something else that's kind of cool about it, it's tied, this is another CDC pattern. It's tied with both a natural color and it has a fluorescent color. So um, this one, it has this crazy, like, fluorescent orange. And it's great because that's for us. It's, you know, if you're fishing with a distance, if you're fishing in a low-light situation, like, it's really tough to see emergers because they sit lower. They sit in the film. But this one, it has this kind of pink wing that's kind of blasting at you, and it's a little bit easier to see. So, you know, there's a little bit of techniques built into it, plus there's kind of, like, some help when you're fishing it. Yeah. And then... Probably the nymphs is your largest section, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's some ones that I use and recognize there, Frenchie, Mopfly, uh, Waltz Worm, uh, Pertagon, lots of good ones in there. So pick one. <laughs> oh, God, this is, a, this is a tough section. I mean, yeah. I'm into Euro-nymphing right now, so that's probably one of the reasons why this is that's the largest section of flies. I mean, to me, they catch the most fish. Um, even though I love dry flies and emergers, I love throwing articulated streamers, but if you see me in Pennsylvania, I'm probably going to be Euro-nymphing the majority of the time. My publisher, Jay Nichols, when we first put this book together, he was like, we have to have a Paragon. So that was, without a doubt, like number one, because they're so effective. It was my choice to put in a mop fly, because I wanted to be able to say, like, I'm the first fly-time book to have a mop fly, and I'm sure anyone <laughs> in the audience, they're probably all laughing. They're like, are you serious? There's a mop fly in here. And, but I did build some techniques into it. I, didn't, I, try, I gave you a lot of value for that one. But the fly that I would probably recommend to, for people to check out is called the CDC Quill Body Jig Nymph. There's just a ton of stuff going on in this fly because um, we're very fortunate right now. We have a lot of natural and synthetic materials that can accomplish the same thing. And there are so many synthetic quills out there that are phenomenal, that will really do the job for us. And quills, natural quills, are really fragile, and it's very easy to tear. So I talk about the notion of, of varying that material, but I also wanted people to see the benefit of using a quill body and an actual quill. And maybe it's because I just had a conversation with Mike Valla before I picked that fly, but I wanted to use a natural quill, but instead of reinforcing it the traditional way, which would be to counter rib, um, I chose to put some uh, Solaries UV resin on it, and I think this is some Solaries bone dry that, that I secured it with. So we have kind of a more of a traditional nymph in a sense, then we throw on this, this UV resin, so I talk about the notion of that. And then at the front of the fly, for legs, instead of using something like Hungarian partridge, 
I guess now this is turning into the theme of this book, at least right now for these three that I selected, we went with CDC. Because in my mind, so many people associate CDC with the dry fly. But CDC used, you know, under the surface, using used subsurface, is such an incredible material. It shows so much movement. It almost looks lifelike. Maybe you lose kind of that great modeling, but you make up for it in the movement. So in this pattern, I show that notion of integrating CDC on wet flies and nymphs. Then we put a little hot spot at the very front to kind of just to show what a hotspot also does, how it can add this little incentive to the pattern. And then in the section, I have sections that are built into each of these flies. There's four sections, and one of them is a fishing suggestion. And I talk to people, I talk with people about the notion of when would you fish a, a fly that has CDC versus not? Like a paradigm doesn't have CDC. So, so I, I kind of explain maybe if I'm going to be fishing some really fast water where the fish have like a split second to make a decision to eat or not eat, then you go with the paradigm versus when you have a spot where maybe it's a little bit of a slower moving water, where the fish have a little bit more time, you want to build in something more to give them a reason to say yes. Because that's what fish, they, fish want to say yes. And in this case, it's going to have some CDC fibers that are moving, that are, are showing some movement that you couldn't otherwise show. Hence, you would go with a pattern like this. Now, is this your pattern? Or no, it's not. I mean, I kind of, I mean, I call it just a, I just gave it a generic name. It's a CDC quill body jig. And I'll be honest, I'm sure somebody else ties it. I also don't want to be the person to say I created this fly because it's just it's a yeah. generic nymph. And I, I think yeah. you would reference, like, uh, you know, the Jack Dennis book. And I can remember, like, looking through the Orvis guide years ago to, to figure out what flies were named certain things. And it's too bad because for people that are creating these really unique patterns today, there's no place for them to look to say, like, oh, is this pattern, does it exist already or not? It's really difficult because there's a lot of people yeah. who – email me they email me flies all the time they're like Tim I came up with a new fly and I'm like nope you did and it's been out there for about 25 years because there's no there's no catalog anymore and yeah so I, I don't if yeah. somebody does know the name of that fly I apologize well there was a book published by Fly Fishers International or I think it was the Federation of Fly Fishers back then yeah. but it was um kind of a catalog kind of thing of all these flies that were tied by members of, you know, the organization. And I went through that. I didn't know any of the flies. <laughs> no, there was one oh, I recognized. No. I mean, they were all unique, you know, uh, to the, wow. the, the tire. But it was just kind of amazing because I was looking for something. Oh, there'll be something in here that I'll recognize, but there just wasn't. It was all original, unique stuff, at least in their minds. So, But I, yeah. I like the picture on that. I mean, the two things. I love the CDC. But I like that quill body because it looks so, for lack of a better term, insecty. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it looks like an insect's exoskeleton. You know, yeah. and I think that's probably what makes it a, a great fly. And the mop fly, I have to tell you, Tim, when I heard about that, I go, "What the hell's a mop fly?" So I googled that. And guess what? Your video came up on how to tie a mop fly. So I used your oh, video to tie funny. it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I just. Great. And then I used it and, and caught a fish on it, and I'm going, okay, well, yeah. this thing works, you know. It works. It's kind of like yeah, it's it, sad. Everybody says, you know, the kind of general talk about it is when it's working, it really works well. When it's not, it doesn't work at all. Well, it's kind of like all flies, right? <laughs> you know, depends Listen, on the day. Roger, I don't fish. I don't fish the mop fly as much as some, and it's, it's too bad because I'm kind of known for it because my video kind of escalated and it took off on YouTube. 
And I don't necessarily even tie it that way anymore. The way that I share in the book is, is kind of the way that I tie it now. So I will kind yeah. of – I'll mention that to everybody. But it's a great fly. I mean, it's, there was a, I was in a run on Monday. It was a really fast water situation that went deep to hurry. And it just it looked like a spot where I wanted to get down. I tried a few of the, the Euronymphs that I was fishing. They just didn't get down fast enough. And the mop fly, if you really put a, a pretty big bead on it, we're talking like a four-millimeter bead on it, it will get down in a hurry, even though it, it fluctuates. And I put that fly on. I made two drifts, and on that second drift, I caught a brown trout. I won't tell you how big it was, but it was the largest brown I've caught out of that water in my life. So, oh, wow. Yeah, wow. go with it. it. It's a good fly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last one up, last section up is streamers. Perfect. I'll make this one quick. Um, the one that I would probably showcase is, it's called the articulated streamer. There's just something about articulated streamers. I think Blaine Chocolate really has been the one to bring them to all of our attention. He's got a great book that's out there right now. I believe it's on his Game Changers. I love articulated streamers. There's something that's so great about them. They're a larger pattern. The one that I share in the book has two hooks because in Pennsylvania, we're legally allowed to throw two hooks, but I would encourage people to you know, figure out what their, their local rules are or wherever they're, they're going to be fishing to, to determine that. In this one, I really focus on trying to, to look at this streamer pattern, but to simplify it. So I tie in the way that almost breaks it down into two woolly buggers that you're connecting. I feel that for so many people who got into fly tying over the last 20 years, that was one of the first flies that you tied. But people look at these articulated streamers, and they get scared because they just look like there's so many steps, and they're so big, and, and where do I start? So I try to figure out just a, an easier way to break this down by using um, an EP brush. Because you know, Enrico Puglusi, just he has yeah. some great products. So I, I said, let's use an EP brush. Uh, I shared with the way to connect them. And I, I hope people who, ha who, who purchased the book appreciate the second picture that's shown in that section on page uh, 117 isn't an articulated streamer. It's just it's the front part of it because all of us make mistakes. And I was fishing in Iceland a couple years ago. I host trips there every year. We're going this July, but on one of my trips there, I saw a really large Arctic char. I grabbed an articulated streamer from my box, and going back to what I said before, control what you can control. I didn't take a second to just pull on it to make sure it was still secure and it was still tight, but it was one of my first versions of this articulated streamer. It had been tied with a connecting material like, I don't know, maybe it was dry fly backing. It must have dry rotted or just went bad, and I hooked the fish on my first cast. It would have been my largest char of that trip. It was everything just fell into place. I hooked it. I set the hook, felt the fish. Everyone was watching it. They're cheering. And then everything went slack because he ate the back hook and he pulled it right away from the front one. So I also wanted to share in the book that, hey, stuff happens. It sucks. Yeah. So learn from those situations and make it better. So the version in the book, it will not come apart. Yeah, yeah. The other person that does really – into the, the articulated uh, streamers is Kelly Gallup, too. He's got oh, yeah. quite a few patterns that you can tie with that technique. So, um, well, terrific, terrific. We've got a couple of questions. I'm, we're running late here, but I want to get these last couple of questions for folks. Uh, Ed in Colorado, he says, I've been hearing about tying in the round. What do you feel are the pros and cons? Also, is it possible to tie a flashback nymph in the round? Also, your two-minute ties encourage me to try my hand at fly tying. Don't know whether to thank you or curse you. Seriously, made tying more approachable. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, do you, what do you know about tying in the round? I, I'm, for people who aren't familiar with that, it's basically saying that whenever you tie in a material such as dubbing, such as the pheasant tail, 
that you can turn your vise or you can, you can place the material the whole way around the fly that if you look at the pattern from any of the 360 degrees, it looks the same the whole way around. That's tying in the round. He asks the pros and cons. I mean, the pros are simple. It's very fast. It's a basic pattern. They catch fish. As I said before, fish are looking for a reason to say yes. So it's a great starter pattern. So can you tie a flashback nymph in the round? I mean, technically, no, it wouldn't be in the round anymore because you're adding on right. an auxiliary material across either the top or the bottom, depending on how you want it to sit. So the short answer is no, but I kind of look at this as when you add extra stuff, you're trying to encourage fish to strike for a reason. I mean, one of the best fly fishers I've ever spent time with, his name's Pat Weiss. He's a member of Fly Fishing Team USA. He's very low-key. He's probably that one angler in the country that very few have heard of that will outfish everybody. I mean, Devin Olson seems to look up to him, if that means anything. So whenever I fish with Pat, he doesn't use any hot spots on the flies, which is, it just seems crazy because there's so many hot spots, so many bright-colored beads on so many patterns of mine and, and many others. Yet this guy outfishes everybody, and he doesn't use them. So to answer that question of Ed, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great to tie flies and to fish them in the round because so many people do, and they're great. I think Ed also talked about my two-minute ties. I did have a series yeah. of videos that were called the two-minute ties. Ed, you probably know this. There's no way I ever get through one of those videos in two minutes because I like to talk. So I apologize. They're, no, they're like eight-minute <laughs> videos called two-minute ties. So, uh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. A couple more, two more questions, and then we'll call it a night. Ed Constantini in uh, Wisconsin says, I was taught to tie in tails at the bend of the hook using the barb as my guide and, and a pinch wrap to secure the tail fibers. Many of the tying videos I view today show the tire measuring the tail and pinching the fibers at the bend, but starting the tie in at 50 to 75% point of the hook and tying back to the bend. Is there advantage to this myth? Yeah, and I think what Ed's getting at, and just to kind of explain it to people, a lot of tires will tie in their thread closer to the tail because they know the first material is going to go in at the tail. And then you also see a lot of tires who tie in, for instance, a lot of my Euronymphs that have a bead on them, I'll tie in my thread starting at the bead, basically because I want to lock that bead into place. But also, whenever I tie in the tail, I try to make my initial cut of the tail, or whenever I remove those tailing fibers from whatever the stem is, I like to cut them so I can lock them in place and I don't have to make any additional cuts. So they're, they're locked in place, they're there, but most importantly, as I then wind down the hook shank towards the bend, I'm not going to have that dreaded bump at the base of the tail. And I think that's what happens to a lot of tires, that whenever they start tying in, they start their thread right at the tail, right at that where we'll say where the barb would be. When they start it there, they start to build up a little bit of thread there. Then they tie in whatever their first material is for the body. And instead of allowing that material to, to go up the entire shank of the hook, they kind of stop it right there, and they build up this bump at the base of the tail, which now that we can argue, does that bump matter or not? I mean, it, it's not going to give you the illusion of a, a pretty a nice carrot taper or at least a straight and slender body. So it wouldn't be necessarily, if we were in a fly tying competition, it's not the best thing to see, but that's the reason why a lot of tires have gone to the method of starting to tie in things closer to the eye. Okay, okay. And last one, Greg in Duluth, Georgia. He says, hello, Tim, this is Greg, newsletter editor for the Atlanta Fly Fishing Club. 
I know your book uh, on fly tying for everyone hits the shelves tomorrow, July 1st. But some of us cannot wait even that long. <laughs> Down here in the southeast, trout, bass, and bluegill slam the squirmy worm. The only bad news is, is that the squirmy worm may only last three bites. After three bites, the fly is typically torn up. My question is, do you know of any stronger, more durable material to tie a squirmy worm without sacrificing the lifelike movement this fly demonstrates in the water. As a side note, San Juan worms are too stiff. Squirmies are much more lifelike in the water. That is likely why they get slammed so much. Anything come out that's better? Yeah, uh, yes and no. I mean, for, well, Greg says that they work in the southeast. Let's be honest, squirmy wormies work all around the world. My publisher would not let me put a squirmy and a mop fly in one book, so you're not going to find out about it in the book. But, but thanks, Greg. I appreciate the time words, Greg. And I need to get down to Atlanta for the fly fishing show one of these years. I need to get down there. Um, in short, there's a couple things. First, my first recommendation, if you have a chance to test out the squirmy, wormy material in person, the first thing to do, take it and stretch it out, and your arms should nearly go the full way apart, assuming you're not, you know, six foot six. But you should be able to stretch that squirmy material that far. If you can do it, that's quality squirmy material. But if you stretch it like halfway, you don't even get to your shoulders and, and it, it tears, that's cheap squirmy, wormy material. So going back to material selection, there is a difference in material selection, even with squirmy, wormies. There's a video that I put out that I think I called it something like the best squirmy, wormy yet, because there's another way to tie them in that will they won't tear as much. And it's with these dental bands. You may have seen the video, Roger. And the, it's tough to explain, so I'm not even going to try to get into it. But the gist is, instead of wrapping the squirmy, wormy material around the shank of the hook, you place it in these holders, in a sense. And what's nice about that, they don't seem to tear as much. And also, say you want to change colors, you can change colors on the water. You don't have to carry more squirmy, wormies that are tied up. You can just carry the material. Uh, if one does get torn, you can just slide in a new one. So it's a really cool technique whenever you start to get it down. It's, it's not a tough tie by any means. So I would recommend that. The other aspect of this is that squirmy wormies, I believe in fly fishing competitions, in many of them, they've been banned because they work really well. So there was kind of this, this not a loophole, but this, the way that they banned it basically said something along the lines that you can't have that material in a larger diameter than whatever something is. So they, they attempted to ban them in many competitions. I'm, I'm not a, I don't huh. compete, but I, I've, I've heard this. So I think it's pretty fascinating because I want to find out what are the banned flies because it sounds like those are really good flies. So squirmy wormies were banned. <laughs> yeah. a, a, a material that, I, that a lot of people immediately jump to is, is by Semperfly, and it's called suede chenille. So it's, it does absorb water, so it's not as stiff as the San Juan worm. So it's a little closer, but, but it's not a squirmy wormy. At the end of the day, I've tried to a bunch of them just – Try to stick with the quality squirmy, wormy material. And if you want to try that Semperfly suede chenille, see if you can get your hands on it. Is there a particular brand of squirmy, wormy material that, that you like that is worthwhile for yeah, you? Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, the name brand that I remember is called Caster's Squirmito. That's the one that kind of, if there's one that I see that I buy all the time, it's that one. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, with squirmy wormies, you also want to make sure, I love that we're talking about this tonight, you want to make sure that you don't st store them in the sunlight. It seems like the, the UV rays will affect them. So I had a box that had a bunch of squirmy wormies in it, and it was a clear cover, and I left it in my, the front seat of my car, 
and when I came back the next day, every squirmy wormy was just completely just blown. They were all torn in the center where, where I'd wound them around the hook. So oh, keep that in mind, too. Try to protect it from UV rays. Yeah, that UV can do a lot of damage to a lot of different things. Yeah. yeah well, time to wrap things up here, Tim. It's been fun. We could have talked for another two hours, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, I've got to get some sleep tonight. So, <laughs> so we're going to wrap too. this thing up. And here's, it's two hours later where you are, so I know you're ready to go. So let's wrap this thing up. When we return, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And we're going to give away a copy of Tim's latest book, Fly Tying for Everyone, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So um, stick with us a few more minutes, and we'll do just that. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, and a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout, flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. Uh, you can view their current wish list and learn more about how you can support them uh, by going to fishon.org, fishon.org, or call them at 616-855-4017, 616-855-4017. And just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. The, uh, if you haven't, the way that you get into this drawing is to register through our, our registration database. If you didn't do that for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do it for the next show so you don't miss out on some of the great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. It's a great organization to support. Uh, they do a lot with con con conservation efforts. They they do the um, fly tying and also uh, uh, you know fly casting. Uh, uh, they, they sponsor the and certify the instructors for fly casting. They, they do a lot for the sport. So we're going to give that away. And let me get the database here. It's just going to randomly select someone. And the first one up is Greg Golf. Uh, Greg, he was the one that asked the last question. So that uh, name sounds wow. familiar. So congratulations, Greg. And you'll get that one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And now we'll give away one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. So check them out, amatobooks.com. And the winner for that is James Crow Crowell. Uh, James Crowell. So congratulations, James. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy that magazine. Lots of good fly tying stuff in there, right? Uh, Tim, so uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So now let's give away a copy of Tim's book, Fly Tying for Everyone. And um, I'm going to ask you a question, and you have to put in your answer on the home page along with your name and location. And 
let's see here. I'm just going to clear my queue here. A couple more questions came in there. Uh, let's see. Um, um, I'm going to make this real simple. What was the tool that that Tim has used most often and for the more majority of his type flying experience? Uh, what was that tool that he keeps using again and again and that you might want to use as well? Uh, I hope I described that well enough. We'll see, Tim. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What is the I'm not going to lie. Words? I thought you were going to go with a different question. I really didn't. In fact, I was going to enter it into your queue and send oh. it to you like two minutes ago, <laughs> oh. thinking that was what you were going to ask, just to, uh, to play a little, a little, a little prank on you. And I'm glad oh. that you didn't ask it. So that's cool. Oh, okay. And uh, we got one right off the bat here, Razorblade. Uh, Don Rose in Pelham, New York, uh, congratulations. You just got a copy of Tim's new book. And uh, we've got more coming in here. No, it wasn't the bobbin, but that was a good tip. That's what I thought uh, it was going to be. That's, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah, lots of razor blades, bobbin, yeah, razor blades, yeah, yeah. So we had a few other winners there, but they weren't quick enough to the draw here. So Don Rose, congratulations. Hey, Don, you're going to need to send me your address. I've got your email. I've got your name. need your shipping address so that we can get Stackpole to ship out a book to you. And uh, thanks to Stackpole for doing that for their authors. They've been working with me since 2006. Great publishers, Tim well knows. And uh, and they're the ones that provide these great, great prizes like Tim's book. So those of you who didn't win, check out, you know, go looking for uh, uh, Tim's book. Oh, Tim, what's it? share your uh, website address. We didn't do that earlier, and I'd love to do that. Oh, sure. I, I would direct people to the website. They can find all of my videos there, all my speaking engagements. If you have a club, you're, in, you're looking for a speaker, especially over Zoom, you can contact me that way. Uh, the web, website is simple enough. It is... Uh, www.troutandfeather.com. Troutandfeather.com. There you go, folks. So if you want to get in contact with Tim, there you go. You can uh, look him up there, and um, thanks for that. Tim, thanks so much again for being on my show. It's been a pleasure having you, and thanks for sharing all your knowledge. And again, congrats on your new book. And um, hopefully I'll see you in Denver uh, at a fly fishing show this year if it all happens again, <laughs> which hopefully it will, and uh, hope to see you then. You got it, Roger. Hey, listen, thank you so much. Just so you're, the listeners know, Roger runs such a professional gig here. I mean, he is all in with this. He did a great job setting up Clubhouse for so many of us earlier this year. I mean, Roger, everything you're doing for the sport, it's noticed and it's appreciated. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that as well. Hopefully, it's a, it's a work of, of love, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> nice that uh, people enjoy it. I do appreciate that. Hopefully, all of you have found uh, the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top-line menu. In that archive, you'll find over, I believe, over 335 shows, something like that now. Uh, just search by a keyword, keyword phrase like, fly tying and you'll find all kinds of uh, all kinds of shows we've done in the past it's just a wealth a great library of information by some of the top people like Tim and others in the industry our next broadcast will be on July 21st 7 p.m. Mountain Time 9 p.m. Eastern Time on that show I'm going to regroup with Christian Bacasa and our topic for the show will be 
Fly Fishing for Leadership. So uh, Christian has written a book on that, and uh, we're going to follow his lead, and we're going to, we all know what good leadership is when we see it. And just as we know a good fly angler when we meet one on the river, it's not their age or equipment or the fly stuck in their wader patch. It's the way they behave towards the river, the fish, the environment, and their dog and their fellow anglers. Can we learn fundamental leadership principles through fly fishing? We'll listen in and learn from Christian how leadership and fly fishing can work together to help you in your pursuits. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website and make sure you sign up receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Welcome.